Leora, you have a very long bio, and as you will tell from her accent, she's from the part of the world where I was born and grew up till I was seven. How old were you when you left? Can you tell? She doesn't want to say. I don't know. 28. 28. We'll go with 28. So, um, but I just took a piece of it to share with the group that's relevant. There's a lot more about Leora you can read online. An artist, curator, and author, Leora is a passionate and inspiring speaker who is committed to using art as a means to educate. As founder and executive director of the David Lubkowski Project in 2015, she co-developed an educational program to educate audiences about Eastern European life before, during, and after the Holocaust through a body of 400 pieces of narrative art by her great uncle, Lithuanian-Israeli artist David Lubkowski. The art you see around us is from that collection. These are all original. Please don't touch them. No, I'm kidding. These are copies of the art. She puts the originals in the car and drives them around. Um, the project-based uh, educational program is now in middle schools, high schools, colleges, and other educational centers, as well as in Lithuania, or it has been in Lithuania just recently, South Africa and Mexico. Please join me in welcoming Leora Rakin to Orange County, California. As you can tell from my accent, I'm from Alabama. <laughs> uh, they're definitely awake. And um, I've been living here for, believe it or not, 20, 20 years. I've gone to the grocery store. People still ask me if I'm having a good vacation. Um, but I've been here for quite a while. Art is a very powerful tool to introduce difficult conversations. In conversations about anti-Semitism, bigotry, discrimination. Art allows us to begin the learning process. David Lavkovsky's art, the art of my great uncle, over 500 pieces painted over half a century ago are today more relevant than ever before. Who is David Lavkovsky? David Lavkovsky was my great uncle. He survived the Holocaust by being sent to a prison camp in Siberia. Just a show of hands, who's going to Vilna, Lithuania? You guys are in for the most phenomenal, amazing, surreal experience. And we'll discuss more of that later. So David Lovkovsky grew up in Vilna, Lithuania in the early 1900s, when Vilna was the epicenter of the Jewish world. And as I'm sure you know, it was often referred to as the Jerusalem of the North. And it was Napoleon who first said, you know, Jews deserve the same equal treatment. They can own homes, they can own property, they can have a synagogue, they can practice their religion freely. And for centuries, Jewish life existed, not just existed, because existed is the wrong word. Jewish life thrived in Vilna, Lithuania. Now, we often see and we look at the Jewish community and the Jewish world today and we go, oh, everyone's got their own opinion. It's so divided, okay? And we think this is a totally unique situation. The truth is, the Jewish community in Vilna was completely, completely diverse. There were groups that were very, very religious, very orthodox. There were Jews who were part of what's known as the Bundist group. Anybody heard of the word Bund? 
Okay, so Buddhists really believed, and the emphasis was on Yiddish and culture. And they believed that if they emphasized their Yiddishness, their, their culture, this was more important than where they were physically. This was the emphasis. This was who they were as Jews. They also believed that socialism was the solution to both anti-Semitism, to poverty, to pretty much all the world's problems. This is what the Bundes believed. They also believed that people should stay in Vilna and not leave it. That, why would you want to leave it or go somewhere else? And then the third group were the Zionists, who really believed that Jews should be going to what was then known as Palestine, they should be going to Israel and working the land, and this is where all Jews belonged. So anyone who says it's only today that all Jews have different opinions, they should have tried living in Vilnius in the early 1900s. So David Lavkovsky, which group does he fit into? He actually fits into the more socialist group with all the other artists at the time. And he was part of a group called Jung Vilna. I don't know if anyone's ever heard of this group. Jung Vilna and all the Jewish artists and writers and poets, they used to get together and creatively inspire each other. And what's your name, remind me? Rochelle. Rochelle, you know, as an artist, you sort of feed off other artists. You get inspired. And this is what this group did. David was one of those people literally born with a paintbrush in his hands. All he wanted to do day and night was paint and draw and sketch. The problem was that he was not a great academic student. And his parents were very concerned that he was not going to be able to graduate from high school. It wasn't like today that everyone just gets passed through, okay? You had 22-year-olds still in high school. So what do you think his parents did? What would you as a parent do? Take away the paintbrush. Okay, what, what else would you do? Sorry? Send him away? Very good. That is exactly what his parents did. They hired a woman by the name of Rivka Spector. She spoke eight different languages fluently. And all she wanted to do was study to become a botanist so she could go work on the land in Israel. What do you think happened? Well, David developed a huge crush on Rivka. She, at that point, was not interested. The actually interesting, Rivka was two years older than him. Okay. Rivka was two years older than him. He develops this huge crush on her, and she is not particularly interested. She goes off to study to become a botanist um, in France, because during that time, there were very, very strict quotas at the University of Vilnius about how many Jews were allowed to attend the university. So, David Lavkovsky finally graduates from high school, and he wants to pursue his life as an artist. That's all he wants to do. And he goes to, he travels from Vilna to Moscow. 
And there he gets a job working at the State Jewish Theatre in Moscow. Do we know any other artists who worked at this? Chagall. And at this point in time, the State Jewish Theatre in Moscow is heavily supported by the government. The stage designs and the set designs are truly works of art. And David works there, but he really needs to, he needs to be schooled in being a real, real, art, real artist. And so what does he do? He applies to the Art Academy in Leningrad. And at that time, the Art Academy in Leningrad is one of the most prestigious art schools. And he is one out of 500 applicants that is accepted to study at the Art Academy in Leningrad. So imagine this incredible euphoria. At last, he is really living his dream, right? He is not only learning to draw and to paint and to mix paints, but he's also learning anatomy. Because if you want to draw people and you want to draw form and you want to draw emotion, you need to understand how the body works. Every movement, posture, shading, stoopness, eyes. He needs to understand this. He needs to learn it. And so he is at the Art Academy in Leningrad, and we need to take a step back now and think, what year are we in? Okay? We are in the year 1940. What do we know is happening in the world in 1940? World War II has broken up. 1939, World War II starts. Okay, Russia is going to need every single able-bodied person to fight in the war. David Lovkovsky is in Russia. He gets taken out of the Art Academy and forced to enlist in the Red Army. Who is in charge of Russia at this point in time? Who is the ruler? Stalin. Okay. What do we know about Stalin? Is he the kind of person you'd want as your best buddy? No. Why? You would want him? I'm not so sure. Well, what do we know about Stalin and his personality? A killer? Psychopath? What else? Paranoid. Absolutely. What's your name? Joanne. Joanne. He is absolutely paranoid. And why is he paranoid? He is convinced that every single person is trying to assassinate him, that they are trying to sabotage the war efforts. And because he's so paranoid, left, right, and center, he sends 12 million of his own people to their deaths. And literally, for almost anything, you can be executed or, second option, sent to Siberia. So, who has been to Siberia? Amazing. Usually there's nobody. Okay. <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about Siberia. Um, I don't know if Ari told you, but there's a mandatory trip for this whole group to <laughs> Siberia. In 1915, Stalin had this idea that these Jews, maybe they should have their own ha homeland. And 
he started sending Jews, and Jews voluntarily went there, to this absolute, absolute barrenness where nothing existed, and Jews landed up in Siberia. Okay, that's the first thing you need to know about Siberia. The second thing you need to know about Siberia, and this is particularly interesting because I was just speaking to Ari before our session, and he shared this experience with me, but in 1941, when Lithuania was annexed, part of Lithuania came under the control of the Nazis, and part of Lithuania came under Stalin. And the part that was under Stalin, randomly, unrandomly, thousands and thousands of Lithuanians, Jewish and non-Jewish, were deported to Siberia, including Ari's family. And these Jews that were deported to Siberia, many of them were the so-called wealthier Jews, or they owned a shop, or they um, were the intelligentsia, they were academics. And these were seen by Stalin as being a threat to, a threat to the nation. But Lithuanians, non-Jews, were also deported to Siberia. And this journey, they did not know where they were going. They were put into cattle cars, and it was a three-week long, 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 long journey. The Jews that went were extremely envious of the Jews that had been allowed to remain behind. They got to stay in their house. They got to stay in their beds. What do we know happened to these Jews? 95% of the Jewish community in Lithuania was murdered, including my great-grandparents. And the Jews of Lithuania specifically Vilna, don't actually get to the concentration camps. They are forced into the ghetto, and from there, they are marched to the forest of Ponar, where you will be going, and they are stripped of all their clothes and all their possessions, and they are shot into mass pits. And that is what happens to the majority of Jews from Lithuania. So now, David Lakovsky, he gets to Siberia in a slightly different way. He is accused, while he's fighting for Russia, of being anti-Soviet. We don't know what it means. It could be anything. It could be that I smiled at you and I didn't show all my teeth, and that means something, and I'm trying to sabotage things. He is sent to Siberia, but before he gets to Siberia, He's actually sent to the Lubyanka prison in Moscow. Anybody been? You I haven't been. I've read a lot about it. Okay, wonderful. Probably one of the most notorious prisons. One of the things that they are well known for is their extreme torture techniques, which David Lapkowski actually experiences. And he is in the Lubyanka prison for 10 months. How do we know this? How do I know that it was 10 months? Because a year ago, we were able to open a KGB file that had the exact date that he came into the Lubyanka jail and the exact date 
that he was sent to Siberia. We also have the same information for his brother. And we were able to tell his children for the first time a year ago when their father was actually executed. They had no idea till last year of the actual date that he died. So David Opkowski goes to Siberia after experiencing this awful, brutal experience in the Lubyanka jail. And we know from his art that he's in solitary confinement and that he experiences one of the worst tortures, which is known as the tunnel technique. And the tunnel technique was three levels below the basement. So you can imagine it's freezing and you go three levels below the basement. And the tunnel was 72 inches. And for three days, you had to sit in a crouched position in the tunnel. You couldn't lie down. You couldn't stand up. You had to be in that position. Your feet were in freezing ice cold water the whole time. And David Lovkovsky survived that experience. Then he sent to Siberia. And in Siberia, as you know, if you want to survive, you need to work. And the work is brutal, absolutely brutal. It's freezing, freezing cold. We're talking minus 40 degrees. And that doesn't matter if it's centigrade or Fahrenheit. You have to work. And if you don't work and if you don't cut down your certain allotment of wood, you don't get food. So we can imagine what the conditions were like. How many people died from starvation, from malnutrition, from lice, freezing, freezing, freezing cold weather. How is David Lovkowski going to survive his time in a Siberian prison? His skills do come in very good use. One of the prison guards hears about his artistic skills. And he says to him, you know, if I can describe my girlfriend to you, like what she looks like, can you, can you sketch a picture? Of course he can. He's got a photographic memory. This is what he does. There's for you. Piece of bread for me. Another prisoner says, can you sketch my portrait? Sure. A potato peel for you. Now, what do all prisons have in common? even today. Corruption. Okay, corruption. But what will you find in all prisons? You will find? Barters. What? Guards. Guards. What else? Bartering. 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 What else? Prisoners. Prisoners and the prisoners form? Gangs. There you go. And if you're a member of a gang, what are you, know, what are you generally going to have? Protection. Protection and what else? A? Tattoo. And David Lakowski becomes the prison tattoo artist. And in this way, he's not only able to get a little bit of extra food, he's also able to work inside more. And you can imagine, he's also getting a little bit of protection because these are hard, hard line criminals that are in prison in Siberia. So, 
We are now in 1945. The war has ended. The people in Siberia do not know what has gone on in Europe and specifically in Vilna while they've been away. Rivka, my aunt, had meanwhile actually got expelled from France, had to leave France because her other husband was trying to start a communist revolution. He got killed. She moves back to Moscow, finds out David's in Siberia, follows him to Siberia. And they get married after the war, come back to Vilna, Lithuania. And what do they find? Absolute devastation, destruction, the city that they loved, that was the very core of their being, that had existed, this community, for centuries, absolutely decimated and destroyed. And what does David start doing? He starts drawing the destruction. He starts drawing what happened to the very, very few Jews who were actually able to survive. And he starts drawing what happened to those that did not survive. And in fact, this is a picture that he did of my great-grandparents. My grandfather had already brought bought tickets, ship tickets for them to come to South Africa. Um, his sister, Zlata, the girl, and her twin five-and-a-half-year-old boys. In detail, my grandfather had written his testimony, how his mother had worked and worked and saved to be able to buy this house, and all the additions that she'd added on, a cellar underneath, so that she could bake bread and make candles. And it was the Lithuanian police that came door to door, the very willing collaborators. And they were forced out of their home, forced to take whatever they could, and forced into the Vilna ghetto where you will be going. And from the Vilna ghetto, less than 10 kilometers away, they were marched to the forests of Ponar, these beautiful, beautiful forests where the Jews of Vilna had gone for picnics and to pick mushrooms. And when you go there and you see these huge mass pits, they really aren't, there are no words to adequately describe it. So was it the Lithuanian community? The Nazis, the Nazis set the policy, mm -hmm. but you're dealing with years of anti-Semitism mm -hmm. and the collaboration, and it's certainly not just Lithuania, it's all the countries mm -hmm. uh, where you had very, very willing collaborators who benefited incredibly from the Jews being forced out of their homes. And... Um, that's what happened. So David and Rivka come back to Vilna and the Soviet are in charge. It's a communist regime now. But David also wants to capture how the city used to be. What was life like living there 
for Jews for absolutely centuries. And he starts documenting not only the physical city, but the different characters. And he puts himself in many of the pictures. But he paints it in a way knowing what's going to happen to this community. The buildings are slightly slanted. There's a feeling of overcrowdedness. You get a sense of the humanity that existed as well as the relationships behind the statistics. And David paints and he draws and he paints and he draws and he documents his time as a prisoner in Siberia. A young man made old. And if we look at his eyes, we see the hollowness. We see the starkness. A man in his 30s, old before his time. And he puts himself in each of the pictures. A sense of self-portraiture that is so honest and so naked, it's more revealing than any diary. And if we look at this piece, I just want you to throw out words that you think would be appropriate. Words that come to mind when you see this picture. Desolate. Desolate. What makes you say that? Expression on his face. That he's alone. Alone. What else? What other words, feelings, emotions? Sad. Tense. Tense. Why tense? Very nice. The artist in you coming out. All the clues are there. What else are we seeing about the physical situation cold why do you say that very good so we know that it's cold what else is there a spoon and he's hungry is that a is that like a ladle or a handle what else very very good what does that tell us he's a prisoner he can't escape Okay, he is being watched. And even if you could escape, the, the forests and the cold are so dense and so intense that you would die within a, probably a couple of hours. When was this painted? David is painting this after the experience. Tell me about this picture. What is he? What is he telling you? How yes. Little How little food there is. He's hungry. He's hungry. Starving. Starving. Tell me about his eyes. His eyes are vacant. Very gone. Yeah. Vacant yeah. and sunken. Vacant and sunken. Desperation. Absolute desperation. Absolute desperation. If you saw this picture for the first time. Where would you think this is? <laughs> Tell me about these conditions. Cramps, sparse, cold, no blanket. No blanket. What else? One on top of another. There's hardly any space. The band on top, you can see his ribs. Wow, that's an amazing observation. Wonderful. What else are you seeing? 
Is he sleeping with his possessions? Outstanding. What's your name? Michael. Michael. He has to sleep with every single possession that he owns. Why? It will be stolen. So you're sleeping with the shoes that you have, with your food bucket. Because if you don't have that food bucket, there's nothing. And there are also prison numbers. For three years, this is how he tried to sleep. Is the man on top naked? No. I don't think so, but the man in the middle is David Lovkovsky. And he comes back to Vilna and he sees this destruction. But he also paints how the city used to be. And he gives us all these clues. And the original piece, if you look at it carefully, you can actually see shadows of people. Shadows of people that used to exist. The marches. So this is the Nazi part of Lithuania. So this is what happened in the Nazi part of Lithuania. And in 1958, finally David and Rivka are given permission to go and live in Israel. And when I say permission, it was very hard to apply for permission to leave the Soviet Union at that point in time. Because if you wanted to leave, it meant you were dissatisfied with something in the country. But they finally got permission to go and live in Israel. In 58? In 58. Which means that from 45 to 58, they'd been forced to stay in Vilna, where not only had the community been decimated, but they weren't allowed to talk about what had happened during the war, both in Vilna as well as their time in Siberia. So you could still be sent again to Siberia. The yeah, war ended. The war ended. He went back to Vilna. But who, why couldn't they talk about it then? The war was over. You weren't allowed to talk about it. Okay. It was abs okay. absolute silence. You couldn't even tell your neighbor or a friend what you had experienced in Siberia. The Soviets were in charge and they were absolutely terrified of being sent back there. Yeah. So 1958, he comes to Israel and he has this exhibit of this body of artwork. So he brought all this artwork. You, once you were allowed to leave, you could leave. And, bring all your and you could bring stuff with. Hmm. Now, did he have to keep all this secret though while he was living in Vilma? All you these pictures? I would imagine, yes. Yeah. That is what I would believe would be the case um, and they were so incredibly fearful at, at all times still today the Russians don't like to talk about what happened in Siberia it's exceptionally difficult to get information at different points in time um, they release things at one point, there was a semi-gulag museum, but then it was shut down because it was seen as being anti-Russia. Um, 
And even with the new information that we want to try to find, um, the records, there's a lot of bribery involved. And Now, he was in Siberia, but he wasn't with Jews, per se. He was with so the people that were sent to Siberia, millions were sent to Siberia. Yeah. Um, it wasn't necessary because you were Jewish. Well, in his case, it wasn't at all, was it? it right. A lot of people happened to be Jewish, and that was like its own set of circumstances. Um, but so many different people were sent to Siberia. So what happens, in 1958, David arrives in Israel with Rivka. My grandfather is absolutely overjoyed. He had immigrated to South Africa in 1927, a year before, I think, your grandfather. And um, he goes to meet them in Israel. And Rivka is his only surviving family relative. The rest were, were all killed. And in 1959, David has his first exhibition of this body of artwork. What happened to the Jews during the Holocaust, how Jewish life used to be. And emotionally, people at that time are not ready or willing to confront the art, to talk about the art. And if I could share it in one way, it's imagine having a really, really terrible day and you go to your best friend and you say, I want to tell you about my day. And she says, not really interested. You know, it's just going to make me in a bad mood. The, the level of betrayal that him and Rivka felt that here they were documenting history and society at that time not only didn't want to talk about what had happened during the Holocaust, but they definitely didn't want to see these images of these old Jews who lived in this old country when Israel was a young society and needed to, to survive. Yes? How much art did he have that he was able to take? I mean, so, I mean, it's a great question, and there's probably, and we'll get to that in a second, but they're probably closer to about a thousand pieces out in the world. But we'll get to that. So David and Rivka, they didn't have children. My, my siblings and I were like their grandchildren, and my mom and her, her siblings were like their children. They were very, very involved. But the art was really their child. And even if you wanted to buy an art piece, it would be like saying to you, you know, can I purchase one of your fingers? Okay, there wasn't really a value that you, a numeric value that you could put on the art. And so they didn't want to part with it. They didn't want to sell it unless it was absolutely, absolutely necessary. And in 1987, a hundred of the pieces were donated to a museum in his name in Israel called, which nobody knows about, which is a story in itself, but it's in Ramat Gan in Israel. Okay, maybe when you guys go, you'll get a chance to see it. But then in 1991, when he passed away, there were hundreds of other pieces. And these art pieces became involved in a 22-year court case. 22 years, the same attorney, two decades, and six years ago, the case went all the way up to the Israel Supreme Court. What was the, can you tell us about the charges? The main thing was who owned this art. 
And there were seven different fake wills. There was a family in Spot who moved into David's art gallery and claimed it as their own for 20 years, that they couldn't get out. The mayor of Spot was arrested on corruption charges concerning the art. There was running water, like a spring, like a well near the house, and these squatters actually created a temporary mikvah and started charging people to use this mikvah. Anyway, 22 years, this court case went backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards, and um, six years ago, a hundred of the original pieces came to Los Angeles to my mom, and a hundred to her brother in Israel, and a hundred to my aunt in Johannesburg in South Africa. What happened to Rivka? Rivka passed away. Rivka, uh, she passed away in 1991 as well. So, for a year, the art remained in the garage. My aunts put some of hers up, some of it went under the bed, my uncles went up into the attic, and that's what happened. And I started telling people this, this story about this art. And every single person that I, I came into contact with said, Leora, you've got to stop whatever else you're doing. You have to show this art. And I started talking about it, but what I realized was there was a much greater purpose to this art. And the real purpose was using it as an educational tool. And we developed an educational curriculum that uses the art not only to educate and engage, but also to transfer ownership. So what, does, what I mean by transfer ownership when we come into a school, the students end task and their ultimate responsibility is curating an exhibit of David's artwork and being the docents. So what do you need to know or do as a curator? As an art curator, you need to know not only everything about the artist and the art, you need to know everything about the time period in which the artist lived. There's 400 pieces. You can't have 400 pieces in an exhibit. You need to decide which pieces you want. You need to motivate why you want that particular piece. You need to decide as a group how you are going to tell this man's story. So in 2016, we developed the pilot program and we went into our first school. And when I say we went into our first school, I don't mean for an hour. It's a 16-hour program. And it was an eighth grade school in Los Angeles, a charter school. And not a single student had ever heard of the Holocaust. They had never, ever heard of it. And after the 16-hour session, these students were not only educating their peers. They were educating their parents who knew very, very, very little about the Holocaust. And they were educating them in English and in Spanish. 
We started taking this then to colleges, to other middle schools, to high schools. We took it to West Point Military Academy. And um, I had the wonderful privilege and honor of addressing officers and cadets for Yom HaShoah last year. But also teaching them about the art and about the Holocaust through David Lovkovsky's experience. One of my most moving times was I went up to one of the cadets and I said, I just want to thank you so much for everything that you're doing. And he said, no, I want to thank you for bringing this to us so that we can learn about humanity. <coughs> and West Point, I don't know if you know, but it's also a college, so you have different language departments. And we had the German professors bring their students who studying German. And in German, they wrote poetry about this piece. My great-grandparents, who were killed by the Nazis, these German students in America at West Point Military Academy were writing their responses and how they felt. So, what we realized that there were these amazing opportunities to really impact and teach in a very significant manner. But we wanted to take it one step further and we realized that we needed to bring the art back home. Back home to Vilna, Lithuania. But not only in terms of an exhibit, in terms of a meaningful educational experience. And so three years ago, we developed a very special relationship that initially I was very dubious about with the Lithuanian Consul General in Los Angeles. And what was our common denominator? Our common denominator was that they had been deported to Siberia. For them, this is a huge, huge deal. And, and Jews had also been departed, deported to Siberia. So this became our common denominator. And this Lithuanian Consul General started becoming more and more involved with what we were doing. To the point where we said, we want to bring it back to Vilna. We want to have an exhibit. But we want to bring our educational program into a public school in Vilnius. Now, to understand the educational system, you need to understand that Lithuanians have been taught a different history to what you and I have been taught. It's so different that it's almost astounding. They see themselves as the victims. They see themselves as the victims of the Soviets and they see their suffering is very real. So for us to go into a public school and start telling these students that their grandparents had actually been perpetrators was going to be a huge deviation. And we got a lot of resistance. Our first time we went back to speak at the Litvak conference, our educator went to the school, there were only two teachers that were willing to meet with her. The principal would not meet with her at that point. But through this Lithuanian Consul General, 
we were actually able to start the process of educating and going into this classroom and we decided to collaborate with these students in Lithuania with a school in Los Angeles. And these students curated and discussed how this work of art was going to be exhibited in Vilnius through Skype, through phone calls, through research. And we decided that when we got to Vilnius, these students would be responsible for taking us around and showing us all the places in Vilna where David's art. And the weirdest thing was, is that if you go to Warsaw, 90% of Warsaw was destroyed during, the, during World War II. Vilna's not like that. Hardly any of it was destroyed. And it looks like it did then. It looks like it did 100 years ago. The roads are the same. The cobblestones are the same. The arches are the same. And it's this absolutely surreal experience being able to go to the place where David Lovkovsky painted and stand in that very spot. When you go to the Vilna ghetto, the, the names of the roads are the same. We stayed on Jew Street. It's still called Jew Street. The, the names of the Vilna Gaon Street. It's a surreal, crazy, crazy experience and feeling. Now, one thing you should know about me is I have the worst sense of direction. I mean, I, get, I really get lost almost everywhere. And yet when I got to Vilna, it felt like I had lived there for years. It was something so intrinsic, almost like a DNA thing, that everything felt so familiar and yet surreal at the same time. So the exhibit opened at the National Library in Lithuania. And to hear these students from South Africa, from Los Angeles, from Lithuania, who collaborated and were docenting and were explaining to their family, to their friends, to ambassadors, to dignitaries about how the city used to be and being honest about it, about what had happened, was truly the most remarkable and moving experience. So we, no, it just happened. Just, this just happened uh, two months ago. Oh. <laughs> now you said there were students from South Africa and LA. So you're not talking about the kids from Vilna itself then. These were kids that came in. It was Vilna. a co-collaboration exercise between the students in Los Angeles, yeah. the Vilna students, and the South African okay, student. South Yes. Okay. And so did those kids, some of those kids come to this and speak? Yes, they, they were there. They were there. They, okay. We brought them. Yeah. They came to Vilna, they interacted with each other, they made potato pancakes, they came with us to bake challah, they walked around the Vilna ghetto, and then after the exhibit at the National Library, which is really, really worth, worth seeing, they had to transport the art to their school. Because now the exhibit was gonna be set up in their school 
a Soviet-style building that literally every corner of this building would be condemned in Los Angeles within seconds. <laughs> the asbestos exposed, the pipes exposed. I mean, I, I think it looked more like a prison, and this is how they all look. Um, and from their side, realizing how real the Soviet occupation was for them, but so, so real that literally we could not have a conversation with a single Lithuanian without them bringing up the Soviet occupation. But this, this was the wall came down for the Soviet satellites 30 years ago this year. 30 years ago this year. So a lot of these kids are, none of them were born. Right. So 1994, <coughs> sorry, 1994, Lithuanian became independent. Okay. Again. And there are parts of Lithuania, and especially in Vilnius, that literally look like the war ended yesterday. They, the buildings are bashed down, the rubble's still there. Um, you can't, it's, it's, it's just crazy. I will tell you, we had one super surreal, not, I don't even know how to describe this experience. We had different, we had people from American Jewish community, we had LA City Council people on our tour, we had, you know, people from all over that were part of this tour. And we were on our second day. And um, if you remember, I told you that Vilna hadn't been destroyed. So when they're filming a lot of movies and documentaries about World War II, where do they film? They come and film in, in Vilna because it looks the same. So on our second day, the Lithuanian Consul General, he pulls me aside and says, Leora, I need, to, I need to discuss something with you. He goes, I just want to warn you, they are filming a movie about World War II and a whole lot of buildings have been draped in the Nazi <laughs> flags and symbols. And I'm like, oh my God. Okay, firstly, thank God you're telling me because otherwise this would be just surreal even more. Um, and, you know, we don't want any diplomatic wars to break out, like, while we're there. Um, but it's, it's a fascinating, fascinating city. So part of our experience was, and this is what our mission is, is really about, it's not only just engagement with the art. It's not only about learning about the artist. It's about learning about the history. But it's more than that. It's about not only focusing on the death of 6 million Jews. It's about understanding and learning what life was like for centuries before the Holocaust. And how do we convey that? I mean, yes, there are pictures. Yes, there's testimony. There's stories. But we wanted to take it a step further. And we created a virtual reality model. And what is virtual reality? Have you heard of Oculus glasses? Okay. So my son works there. He does? Oh my god, okay, we'll have to speak. <laughs> hang, hang on, hang on, hang on. So virtual reality, you put on these Oculus glasses and you literally step inside the artwork. You are part of the painting. You are interacting with the characters in the painting. You are going into my grandparents' house 
and you are lighting Shabbat candles. And so we launched this for the first time in Vilnius at the National Library. Wow. Who's paying for all this? Who's funding it? We are a nonprofit. We have put in blood and sweat and tears and door to door and one or two foundations and grants. And we are so passionate and committed to the importance of educating and using art as a means to do this, and that's how we do it. What is the name of the educational program? David Lapkowski Project. That's it? Okay. David Lapkowski Project. So you'll see that girl. She's got on the Oculus glasses. And to do this, we first had to do a lot of research. Fortunately, my grandfather had done incredible testimony with not only written, but actually drawing the house from an architectural point of view and each room and each diameter and how big everything was. And we then got a, a programmer and every cobblestone had to be coded into the design. Everything had to be spatialized and geometrized. And I can only say I, I hope we get the opportunity to bring the virtual reality down to Orange County um, because it's, it's a surreal experience that the color's on the table and literally you want to grab out and, and, and eat it. You're picking up eggs, you're pouring water, you're patting the goat. Um, so at this point, it's, it's, it's milk. No, we brought it back. We brought it back. And in fact, um, we've been invited by the LA City Council to do an exhibit um, in Los Angeles um, at City Hall September 18th, and we'll have the virtual reality wow. there as well. So can we field trip? Yeah, if I, if I, I'll, you know what? Yeah. Maybe we can organize a, a field trip. Um, it's uh, right around Rosh Hashanah. Before, two weeks before. Oh. September 18th. September 18th, but if I have your email, I can send you an invitation with the parking information. Right. Um, but what happened was one of the city council people came on with the trip, with us on the trip, and they were so taken with the work that we're doing that we were honoured in city hall two two weeks ago. Who was who was that? Bob Blumenfield. Um, and we're slowly starting to to speak to more school boards and um, you know the California legislature to get this program into schools, not just in California, but really th throughout the world. Because we've seen that it's such an incredibly impactful way of, of learning. So how are we for time? A few more minutes. A few more minutes, okay. So I wanna, I wanna just go towards the end. And obviously the most emotionally draining part was going to the forest of Ponar. And everyone has a point in time where they sort of remember hearing about the Holocaust or learning about it. And for me, there was never a time where I did not know about it because this picture hung on the living room wall and my grandfather would tell me over and over again. So for me, going to Ponar was something that I've wanted to do my whole life. And I never knew if I'd be emotionally ready to do it. The Lithuanians came with us. 
to Ponar. And um, it was so hard knowing what to say. But what I did say, first I complained on the bus there, okay? I complained because there was no air conditioning on the bus, okay? And then when we got to Ponar, I said, you know, I had the audacity to complain about the air conditioning when my family were marched here starving and then stripped and shot into these pits. I mean, who am I? And then I said, I don't blame you. I don't blame you for what happened. But each of you there and each of you here has a responsibility. A responsibility to make sure that not only is the Holocaust taught and remembered, but that it's done in a meaningful and impactful manner. And on that note, I'm going to end. You can ask me any questions you want. This is just a tiny tip of the iceberg. Yes? Leora, how valuable are these paintings? Or can you give me a run? I, that, is that original, Mary? No. No. Okay. No. It is no. Copy, so one of our first functions, okay? Imagine a thousand pieces in a jigsaw puzzle being dropped onto the earth. And you now need to find and locate these pieces somehow and as much information as you can. All right? So that's number one. So our first task was actually getting what we had professionally photographed. Because when we go into a classroom, when we go into an exhibit, unless it's a museum exhibit, if it's a museum exhibit, it's the originals. But otherwise, reproducing them on canvases is the first step. And we've actually just started um, selling some of the canvases as a means to actually raise money for the nonprofit. The reproduction of canvases. Correct, correct. Um, but in terms of the original, I don't even know how to answer you that. Because it's, it's, you, you've got somebody who did not want to part with them. So if you sell in your house, okay, how do you determine the value? You look at comparative values, yeah. right? So it's not like that. Nobody in the family wants to sell them or get rid of them. Um, it's such a personal connection to, to the family. I'm not saying that won't change um, in, in time, but it's a, it's a complicated question. And I've chosen really to focus on the educational side rather than values or, or anything like that. Yes. Where are the so there are 100 apparently in this museum in Israel, which I have been to, I have photographed, but then a few months ago the museum got bashed down and we're not 100% sure where those are and we cannot get answers. So unless and until I go there, it's like impossible. It's like municipality governed and if you've ever dealt with something like that in Israel, you know it's impossible. What do you mean bash? Yeah, what is bash? I'm down? going there after this from this trip. I would not give you this task because it it it, it, it would be too frustrating. It would be way too frustrating. So it doesn't exist. Is that what you're We're saying? We're not a hundred percent sure. The museum. I'm not talking about paintings. Yeah, the museum and the paintings. At this point, we cannot get answers. Was it in spot? 
No, the museum was in Ramagan. When I went to Spat five years ago, I went to where their house museum used to be, and there was a door open, and I walked inside, and it looks like a bomb has gone off, and it's still not clear what's going to happen to this property. Yes. Is this a relative? I'm just intrigued with that. So, you know, I'm pleased you asked about this picture because this picture, if you look at it from this angle, okay, and now you look at it from this angle, and maybe later you can get up and look at it more closely, you're going to see almost two different stories. Um, my mom thinks that it's Rivka as a young, as a young woman. Mama, that's what my mom thinks. Um, he did a lot of, as you know, self-portraiture, but he also did a lot of pictures with his family members in the picture. So it's it's possible, yes. So these aren't dated and signed? Another great question. Some he dated and signed, and many times his signature differs. So sometimes he'll sign it in English, sometimes he'll sign it in Hebrew. Sometimes he, sign, he signs it as David, son of Shlomo. So it's very interesting where he signs and what we've been working on also is cataloging each piece, how he signed it, where he signed it, um, all these little nuances um, about it. <laughs> yeah. Excuse me, if he didn't sell them, both in Lithuania and in Israel, how did he make a living? So, great question. My, my grandfather felt so responsible for them in the sense that they had experienced such incredible, incredible suffering. Rivka was his only surviving family member and he financially supported them, but at the same time, they, they lived an exceptionally frugal existence because they lived like they were still living in Siberia. They didn't believe in any material possessions. Um, they didn't believe in, it was all about the art and all about painting. And why would you possibly need more than one pair of shoes? But you need to eat, I mean, so they have Very minimal, very minimal. Okay. Um, and in fact, when he came out to South Africa, they'd come out my grandfather would bring them out for, you know, months at a time. Even then, they still lived and dressed like they were still in Siberia. So, in Siberia, one of the things that there was plenty of was actually herring. And David would consume vast quantities of herring, like, for breakfast, lunch, dinner. You know, we just, like, went through herring and herring and herring. Um, my, my, they didn't believe in things like washing machines like if you said you know i want to get a washing machine they would think you were the most like almost vain person you know what kind of person has to have a washing machine so their their principles and their beliefs and how they lived their life was extreme frugalism um and and really nothing materialistic at all how much of the painting that existent was done in Israel after 58 and how okay. before? So, great question. And one of the things that I, I left out is in his later years, um, 
he really reaches a sense of renewal and peace. And his style of paintings and the paintings that he does do and that he does sometimes sell are of Israel, Safat, landscapes, Jerusalem, fruit. There's this incredible appreciation um, that he has for the abundance of fruits and vegetables when, when he's living in Safat. And I remember when they, when they came to us in South Africa, the joy that he would get from eating a watermelon. Watermelons were his favorite fruits. And he depicts them in, in many, many, many of his, of his art pieces. Um, so in terms of what was done before and what was done afterwards, the earliest picture that we actually know about but cannot find the original was done in 1929. Okay? The rest... It's a combination of from between 45 and 58, and then from 59 onwards. Um, he also painted and illustrated all the characters of all the Shalom Aleichem stories. And those he was prepared to sell. And so we've developed actually this educational curriculum now for students of all ages and adults where we read the stories and integrate it with his art. Leo, are you only doing this in the public schools? Or no. is it in the Jewish schools in we've, LA? We've taken it to three different Jewish day schools. Um, uh, I don't know if you know of any of the Jewish I day do. schools. Um, Heschel, Dieter Lido, and Adat Ariel. Okay. And we've now developed it into a training program. So, for example, when we went to the Jewish Day School in Mexico, Mexico City, mm -hmm. um, we did two and a half days of teacher training, and now the teachers and the school are able to implement it without us. So that's very much what we'd like to see, especially in the Orange County area, um, is bring, coming in, training teachers, so that they can teach the, teach the program. The art is part of the whole package. Um, but the only way this program and the story gets spread is people sharing it with each other. Somebody saying, oh, I know somebody at this museum. This would be a great place to speak. This would be an appropriate school. That is truly how it gets shared. So let's take two more questions, and then we can stay a little bit. Please. We get kicked out of this room soon, and I don't want to be chased around. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> because firstly there are two parts to it. Um, when I started this, I didn't know that David had a whole section of family members because he'd actually um, like disassociated himself from his family. Um, actually some of them were living in Israel and decided to leave Israel and come to America and there was a period in time where it was like just really, really bad when people left Israel and you know, why were you leaving and they, they, they felt that betrayal very, very, very much. And through this project, I've reconnected with his family members um, who filled me in on so many other details. And some of them in Philadelphia came with us on this trip now. So it's, you know, there's so many pieces. There's this one story that my uncle tells me that uh, when Eleanor Roosevelt was in Israel, she met with David Lovkovsky. 
and he actually donated a piece to her, which is a huge thing for him to have parted with something. It's somewhere in America, and we have not been able to locate where it is. And in fact, even in the Vilna Museum, there are two of these pieces that he donated, which also just recently found out. But because of this project, I have had people calling and I'm saying, you know, my uncle did this, what do I do? We've got this collection of artifacts. Um, you know, it's, it's such a, a labor-intensive process. You really have to commit to it, or somebody in the family has to commit to it. Um, because you can imagine the thousands and thousands of hours that have gone into this. And, and truly, my, my biggest concern when I started, and um, you know, there's all kinds of concerns when you start a nonprofit. How are you going to raise funds? How are you going to do this? But my biggest concern is what happened if nobody was interested, if nobody wanted to see the art, or if people just actually didn't care that much. And that was my, my, my biggest concern, because how would I be able to, to deal with that rejection that the Holocaust, that was such a big part of my life, was actually not that, not that relevant? I just wanted to let everyone know that another artist, Judy Chicago, who mm -hmm. apparently is the either the great granddaughter or the great great granddaughter of the Vilna Gaon, did a Holocaust project that was that was in book it's in book form, uh, very different from this, even very different than that because she's so modern, um, but it's a very interesting. A way of presenting the okay. Holocaust. That wasn't a question, that was a comment. That's true. So we have a chance for a question. You have a question. Well, the others are ready. One, two, who had last question? Okay, so I've been an artist for many, for many years. And um, when, when, when this whole project, when I started this project four years ago, I really had to put my own art aside. And um, I am an artist in residence and scholar. In fact, I'm going to be working with Aries wife at Ramah, um, and I truly love teaching and, and doing my art, but it had to be put aside. And I reached the point that I realized I had to combine my two worlds. And so my son recreated one of David's pieces, this is the Vilna Marketplace, and my mother and I, once a week, for three years, we, wow. <laughs> we worked on this piece over here. And every stitch connects me more and more to our heritage, the heritage of all of us, that that was lost. So, uh, Leora will stay to answer more questions. After I end, if you're coming to the trip to uh, Vilnius, come up, we'll get a photo with Leora holding up the um, one of the paintings from Vilnius. So we are in a little bit of an art phase, you know, things happen, but um, July 3rd, 31st, we're having Shira Horovitz, what is Israeli culture? A roller coaster ride through Israeli contemporary culture. Also, Israeli art is a window to Israeli history and collective memory. And then finally, Adam Adama exploring the relationship between the people and land of Israel as reflected through arts. I hope you'll join us. Two of the evening programs will be at Las Lomas. The yeah, brown bag program will be here. And then in September, a two-part miniseries of Shana Weiss, Black is the New Black, Ultra-Orthodox Jew Jews, Israel, and the Globalization of Television. So if you've been watching Stiesel, we'll be talking about that and other programs on television in Israel. And then Pop Toys and Power Politics, Israel and the Eurovision Song Contest. So 
We do a variety of programs. I hope you will join us. I hope you will support us. And you feel free to stay with questions. Yes? In case anybody's interested, uh, there's a rather long article in Time Magazine this week about anti-Semitism in Europe. Okay. And sorry, why don't, if you want to come to the exhibit opening and the virtual reality mm -hmm. September 18th, yes. put your email and your name, and I can send you the details. I can do, I can do it as well. I can email everybody. Okay. If you email me the details, I will I'll share it. Phyllis Gilmore is here. We want to say congratulations on the pr big production in memory of Barney Gilmore. Some of you were there. Those of you who were not there, it was recorded. I will share the connection, the uh, link with you so you can watch or listen to it. And I think that's all I had to say because I know many people have to go back to lunch. Thank you all for coming out. Come get the photo if you're coming with us.